So the woman takes the fruit from this figure with a transformed appearance so that the deception goes through and it changes the world and brings death. And the only hope is that a higher power would be able to somehow resolve this. And he does. He does in the most amazing and surprising way with love. Death is conquered with love. Of course, you know that I'm describing the major plot points of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? I mean, you got that. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we're talking about ultimately hope, and we're talking about how the gospel um, and the biblical story makes for some of the best expression of these themes and how ultimately on atheistic naturalism, there simply is no real hope. And I know that that is a controversial issue. I know that some atheist YouTubers have done their best to try and find a way to absolve atheism of that problem. Nevertheless, it's still there. And we're going to talk a little bit about it today. Uh, yes, believe it or not, Snow White plays on some very obvious gospel and biblical narrative themes. And it's not the only one. There are several others, but let's just walk through those again. So uh, a young woman... Uh, takes a fruit. In fact, in Snow White, it's an apple. And though the Bible doesn't specify an apple, uh, apple has become, because of artwork and everything else, synonymous with the forbidden fruit in the garden. And so Snow White eats of the apple. Uh, the wicked queen has transformed her appearance such that the deception goes through. The eating of the fruit brings death. And the only hope is that Prince Charming would come and he conquers death with love. And that's an amazing, amazing <laughs> telling of the story. In fact, uh, it's a little more obvious in the Brothers Grimm version because the Wicked Queen has to dance in slippers made of iron that's been uh, uh, turned red hot until she dies or something like that. So the, the parallel is a little more on the nose even there. Uh, but the point, the point of all of this is, is that th the gospel is, uh, and the biblical narrative very much, uh, presents a meta-narrative I'll say it this way. Uh, the biblical narrative is an overarching meta-narrative that so maximally illustrates the most important and enduring themes of humanity that any truly good literary work, film, video game, or play will mimic, borrow from, or highlight the gospel and biblical story, whether intended or not. Now, you might say, yeah, but Braxton, come on. Uh, these ideas like courage and cowardice, I mean, think about it. There is not a culture unless it's the current culture, unfortunately, there is not a, a culture in the history of the world that has not understood that courage is intrinsically a good thing and cowardice is an intrinsically bad thing. Um, I think about this when I look at the way the world is going today and how we don't want to face our problems, we want to run from everything. And nevertheless, the fact of the matter is everyone has known those are good things. Sacrifice, um, forgiveness, these are good things. Love, uh, the idea that love can, can conquer all. And you say, yeah, but Braxton, come on, man. Those things have been around since long before Jesus was born. Well, that's right, isn't it? I believe that. I know that. I've read some of the great books, the great works that come from the pre-Christian era. Nevertheless, the fact still remains that the greatest expression of these ideas is in the biblical uh, narrative, and which culminates in the gospel message itself. So those themes are there, and they have meaning and purpose because of the one true God, but they meet their fullest expression in the story of Jesus. Um, in fact, these themes don't just show up in Snow White. They show up elsewhere. In fact, uh, there's a great article from a website called The Porch, 
is a blog article from one Kevin McConaughey. And the article is called Five Mainstream Movies That Are Secretly About Jesus. Now, some of them, the, the makers were obviously trying to parallel Christian themes, and some I don't think necessarily so. It just kind of happens because uh, the gospel story is so powerful. It is that meta-narrative that so maximally illustrates the most important and enduring themes of humanity. So what are those stories? Well, Superman Returns. Now, let me just say that Superman, I have long held... Uh, as a card-carrying geek, that um, even though I'm a DC fan over a Marvel fan, Superman is a really difficult character, as he exists now, uh, to write a story, to write a compelling story around. And the problem, the reason for that is because he's too godlike in his powers. He's so godlike in his powers that nothing can stop him. And so we know there's kryptonite, but but uh, typically what has to happen for a Superman story is that something his family and friends have to be in danger and he has to save them. It's almost like the family and friends are the ones with, you know, the knife to their throat so that uh, Superman can save the day or whatever, because that's that's the only way, because that's his only weakness, right? One of his only, only two weaknesses. So uh, it's hard to write a good Superman story. Nevertheless, you can see the obvious messianic and uh, godlike uh, figure that Superman is. So that one's not too surprising. But let's go ahead and see what the author has to say. Last year's, this is dated a little bit, last year's Man of Steel got a lot of attention for its intentional Christ references. In fact, the studio created a website just for pastors to help them build sermons around the themes in the Superman reboot. Um, However, it's the previous film in the franchise, Superman Returns, that provided the original inspiration for this list. In all versions of the Superman story, an otherworldly, an otherworldly father sends his son, his only son, as the father emphasizes to, uh, to Earth to be a light to all of humanity. But at the beginning of the movie, the son has been absent, away in the heavens, and many doubt he will ever return. Lois Lane even writes an article stating that Superman isn't needed and specifically says that the world doesn't need a savior and neither do I. Of course, Superman does end up saving her from certain death and then goes about saving everyone else who cries out for help. In the movie's climax, Superman gets stabbed in his side takes the weight of the world, or at least a continent, on his shoulders and strikes a crucifix pose as he dies. But then a nurse, a woman going to take care of his body, discovers that he has risen from the dead when she finds his hospital room empty. He then appears to Lois and tells her that I'm always around before ascending into the sky. So you've got the ascension there too. What about the Matrix? Everyone knows the Matrix plays on these themes. Um... That's obvious. Think about it. In accordance with prophecy, a man called the One, who is part of a trinity, which is even includes a person named Trinity, along with a father figure, Morpheus leaves a place called Zion and enters the world we know in order to save humanity from a slavery that they don't even recognize as such. He faces off against the rulers of this world who deride him for being only human. But after he demonstrates that he has supernatural powers, those authorities kill him, only to have him come back to life and prove he has power over them too. The film ends with Neo explaining to the forces of evil that he is going to show the world a different, better way of living, a world without you. He then also flies off into the heavens. One of my favorite films of all time is The Green Mile. The Green Mile. Now this one, the author of the article says, might not be as quite as obvious, but it's still there. In fact, boy, is it there. An innocent, gentle giant of a man with the initials J.C., is wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't commit and sentenced to death. In the time leading up to his crucifixion, he heals multiple people of different diseases and even brings one character, a mouse, back from the dead. And he heals them in an unusual way by taking their diseases upon himself. 
The chief guard oversees the executions, becoming convinced that JC is for real and offers to let the, let him go. However, JC willingly chooses to let himself to let himself be executed. Whereas other death row inmates say, "I'm sorry for what I did before their execution," JC says, "I'm sorry for what I am. He had done nothing wrong." and was killed simply for who he was. At the end, it is revealed that the resurrected mouse is still alive more than 60 years later, which I'm imagining as a non-zoologist is a lot longer than mice typically live, and that people healed by JC live an incredibly long time, possibly even forever. So there you have it with the Green Mile. What about The Dark Knight Rises? Now here's a DC character I can get behind. See, if you're wondering which of the movies, Marvel or DC, which of the franchises, is the one that Christians should support. It's clearly DC. We've got two movies on the list. Wait, The Dark Knight Rises represents Jesus? In some ways, yes. As in Superman Returns, the film begins with a hero character absent. He returns to Gotham City, which, in case you haven't noticed by now, never seems to be a very nice place and has plenty of people who don't seem to be worthy of being saved. The bad guy, Bane, tries to paint himself as the good guy and gives a speech, offering people the freedom to do whatever they want. How about that? All the while planning to destroy them. He has a time bomb, and there's no way to escape the death that it brings. Oh, no. Bane breaks Batman's body and throws him into a hole in the ground from which it seems no one can escape, a pit which one character describes as hell on earth, and which is the place Bane himself is from. Theological problems there, but who cares? Of course, Batman does rise and return to find that many of the good guys are locked away or hiding out of fear. He organizes them to take on Bane's forces, but still has to deal with the bomb that's going to kill everyone. He does so by apparently taking that burden upon himself and sacrificing his life so that they can live. Of course, we later see that he is still alive, meaning the Dark Knight Rises gives us two metaphors for the resurrection. I won't go through the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, but the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers is on the list as well. Now, what is, why is it that these themes show up with, you know, Superman, the Dark Knight Rises, the Green Mile, the Matrix... The Two Towers. Why why is it that they all have this? Snow White and many, many more that we could list if we had the time to list them. It's because they are playing on themes that are powerful. So powerful, in fact, that these ideas make it into films when they don't even realize that they're doing it, I think. I mentioned this in a previous show, but I'm going to mention it real quickly now. I won't take as much time. But take the Toy Story franchise. Christians prognosticated that when Forky, the character from Toy Story 4, came out, that was half, or you know, it was a spork. It, it's not neither a fork nor a spoon. That this was going to be some kind of a statement about, you know, uh, transgendered individuals. Which maybe that is what Disney had in mind, but it certainly didn't come off that way. Why didn't it come off that way? Because the whole message of the entire Toy Story franchise, at least one of the messages, uh, is that you should be what you are designed to be. You don't get to choose what you are. Uh, Take the first Toy Story, for example. What is the primary story in Toy Story? Well, it's that we have this new toy that showed up, Buzz, who thinks that he's a real space ranger and not a toy, and he won't believe it. And because he's not being what he was designed to be and not embracing his real identity, as a result, he ends up hurting, putting other people in jeopardy and possibly hurting himself as he tries to jump off of tall things because he thinks that he can fly. Uh, Woody, throughout the story, has to convince Buzz that that is not what you are, that is not your true identity. And until you embrace your true identity, you're not going to find joy, you're not going to find peace. And in fact, you have a godlike figure in your life, this child whose toy you are. In fact, its name is ascribed on you. And so your job is to love your child and to love your fellow toys. Wow. Uh, Don't just be whatever you want. You've got to be what you're designed for. By the way, this example, this particular example I got from Donald J. Johnson. Uh, Check out the Don Johnson Show sometime if you like. He has a great book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. 
But in the fourth Toy Story film, and this is a theme that carries throughout the, all, the, all the films, but in the fourth Toy Story film, what is going on? Well, where Buzz had too high a view of himself, Forky has too low a view of himself and thinks that he's just trash to the degree that every time there's a trash can, he goes and tries to topple himself into it because that's all he's good for. That's all he's meant to be. And what happens? Well, Woody again has to convince him, no, 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 you were set apart you were, we could say, sanctified. You were created. In fact, your creator, the one who made you into a toy, is this child, this human child. And so your job is to love your creator and love your fellow toys, and that will bring joy and peace. But if you think you can just decide what you want to be, if you can just be whatever you want to be, that's going to bring danger for yourself and for others who love you. So this, is, this is an unintentional story. So I've, I've shared this with several people, and they say, Braxton, do you think that Disney Pixar meant for that to be the theme that comes out, like they meant it to come across the way that you're describing it, that it, ha it has this, you know, gospel sort of, uh, you know, aim or biblical uh, sort of approach. No, I don't think they meant that at all. I do think they meant uh, to, you know, cast the underlying, th underlying theme, but that's quite the point, isn't it? Even when it's unnecessary, uh, unintentional, uh, these themes are so powerful. The biblical story is so great. The gospel is so redemptive. And so true and good and beautiful that even when it's un, uh, unintended, it bleeds through because, as I say a, a moment ago when I was uh, reading, uh, the biblical narrative is an overarching meta-narrative that so maximally illustrates the most important and enduring themes of humanity that any truly good literary work, film, video game, or play will mimic, borrow from, or highlight the gospel, whether intended or not. By the way, I'm reading from a PowerPoint for a class that is being taught at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary this week. It starts on Thursday as of, the, uh, uh, as of this podcast, the recording of this episode, and you can be a part of it. You can audit that class, or you can become a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary by going to trinitysem.edu, and I encourage you to do that right now. However, this is a powerful thing. In fact, I'm not the only one to notice it. Let me bring in a polarizing figure that atheists love to tell Christians isn't a Christian, and Christians love to tell atheists is a Christian, and I don't know what he is, but I'm going to present this polarizing figure right now because he says something true, and all truth is God's truth, no matter who it comes from. If it's true, it's true. Here is Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan talking about the archetype of the hero and echoing what I think I'm trying to say, so let's listen. It's like... We take the most true things about your life, and then we take the most true things about 10 other people's lives, and we amalgamate them into a single figure, and that would be like a, that would be like a literary hero. And then we take a thousand literary heroes, and we extract out from each of them what makes the most heroic person. That's a religious deity. That's what Christ is. He's a meta-hero. I love that. He's a meta-hero. He is whatever else you want to say about him. If you take the best qualities out of the people you admire most, <laughs> you got a hero. If you take the best qualities from the heroes, you get Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate hero. He is the ultimate hero. But as we're going to see in a moment, we've come to the time of anti-heroes as an archetype. And this is a serious problem. Here's the thing. Why are all these things good? Why is it that the biblical narrative and the gospel truths that are in all of these films and all of these fairy tales and all these stories, why are they there? It's because they're powerful. And why are they ultimately powerful? A lot of reasons. But let me give you one. The one thing that I want to highlight in this video is that the hero is coming 
to bring hope. Hope is what moves us. Hope is the thing that gives us joy and peace in the midst of difficulty, is that there is hope down the line. No matter how bad it gets now, there's a hero who is on his way. He's coming for me. He's going to break me out of this prison. There is hope if there's a hero. And I am in the worst of all situations. I am in a dire spot. But the greatest hero is coming for me. The greatest hero is coming for you if you'll trust him. When he reaches out his hand, if you'll just reach out yours. This is a powerful thing. On atheistic naturalism, unfortunately, that hope is absent. It's absent. Uh, let, let, me just, let me just share with you uh, one of the most popular, and that also is in our films and media. Uh, one of the most popular films right now, because it plays to this uh, you know, embrace of almost a nihilism, is Rick and Morty. Now, I have never seen a single episode of Rick and Morty. I've not seen 10 seconds of Rick and Morty because it just doesn't look like my thing. But as I was preparing for the class that I'm going to be teaching on apologetics and media, uh, I, someone told me you need to get these. There's several quotes. One of my friends who works here at Trinity said, I've got, I've got a friend in Nashville. You're not going to believe. I mean, he's got this quote framed. And he said, look at this. He talked about like some kind of, you know, like an inspirational Bible quote or something. And there's nothing <laughs> inspirational about this at all. And so here it is. Here's the quote. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's going to die. Come watch TV. Wow. What great philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Although that's more articulate and thoughtful than the way they said it. Um, here's another one. Listen, Morty, I hate to break it to you, but what people call love is just a chemical reaction that compels animals to breed. It hits hard, Morty. Then it slowly fades, leaving you stranded in a failing marriage. I did it. Your parents are going to do it. Break the cycle, Morty. Rise above. Focus on science. There it is. The obsession with science, as if science is the only way that gets you to any real truth in this world, which is one of the most uh, oafish lies that people tell themselves today um, that doesn't even, can't even be sustained on its own merits. Um, th this, is, this is what we're saying. Now, who, who primarily is into this stuff? Who primarily watches Rick and Morty? Well, I haven't looked at the demographics personally, but I'm going to wager it's probably young men and older men. Uh, let's say men 45 and younger. Right, right down to 12-year-olds, because today a lot of men in their 40s aren't that much different than young men in their you know, 13, 14 years old, it would seem. Um, but what, what kind of a message are you sending? That is a message of hopelessness. Over here, the gospel message, there's hope. Over here, hopelessness. Uh, this, this is not just in shows aimed at young men, shows aimed at women. Uh, I guess, Orange is the New Black, Netflix show. Now, I have seen some of Orange is the New Black. It is not really aimed at women, but it's a show about women in a prison, right? The main character, Piper, says this. And, oh, I remember, it, I, just, I heard it and I was like, oh, my gosh. Because I realized that the actor probably didn't write this, but somebody wrote it. And it was somebody who needs to watch this channel, frankly. I'm sorry if that sounds arrogant, but, uh, you know, th this, is, this is bad. Uh, Piper says, I believe in science. Oh my gosh, just to say, I believe in, I believe in science. <laughs> I believe in evolution. I believe in Nate Silver and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Christopher Hitchens. 
Although I do admit he could be kind of a expletive. I cannot get behind some supreme being who weighs in on the Tony Awards while a million people get whacked with machetes. I don't believe a billion Indians are going to hell. I don't think we get cancer to learn life lessons. And I don't believe that people uh, die young because God needs another angel. I've, okay, I don't even know. Like the, the version of... <laughs> The version of Christianity that whoever wrote this has in mind is either this is like the worst, like doesn't even deserve to be called a straw man, straw child. That's the <laughs> straw child. That's me. Put that on a t-shirt. It's the, the version of a straw child that is being presented here is, is so bad. Or this person just has almost absolutely no clue of what actual biblical Christianity is. Is. But anyway, I think it's just expletive. And on some level, I think we all know that. I mean, don't you? Look, I understand that religion makes it easier to deal with all the random expletive things that happen to us. And I wish I could get on that ride. I'm sure I would be happier, but I can't. Feelings aren't enough. I need it to be real. Yeah, I do too. But wow. I mean, the very idea, first of all, again, a statement of the lack of hope, hope at all. There's no hope there. Uh, but just the very idea, the person who wrote this has, number one, no clue about Christianity. Uh, the most like bumper sticker, I love, I believe in science, I believe in evolution. Like as if this person's completely unaware that there are Christians who believe in evolution and most Christians believe in science. Um, and, and and the pointing to Christopher Hitch is like, we'll let you slide on Neil deGrasse Tyson and Nate Silver. But, uh, you know, I don't want to speak ill of the dead except to say Christopher Hitchens was a terrible, terrible philosopher, uh, great debater, great rhetorician. But the people that praise Christopher Hitchens for his ability to make great arguments, I, I question that they ever really spent much time like trying to really think through his art, like did nothing to approach the arguments from classical Christianity, like the, the theistic arguments or a resurrection case, absolutely nothing. Um, but, but that's, I believe in Christopher Hitch. I, this is just like, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just bad. I mean, it's just bad. There are much more thoughtful atheists. Unfortunately, these thoughtful atheists didn't come to the conclusion that a lot of YouTube atheist apologists have come to. They came to the conclusion that Rick and Morty came to, which is, let's just be frank about it. Let's just be frank about it. It's that it's just meaningless. It's, it's hopeless. Even Hitchens seemed to see that. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're heading for some heat death in the end of the universe. Um, I'm going to play a clip, uh, another clip. This is a clip from my pastor, uh, just for a moment. This is not going to be long. Uh, but I, but I want you, he's going to read here uh, a portion of uh, Bertrand Russell. And then, uh, well, let's just, let's just listen. This is Bertrand Russell answering the question, on naturalism, is there hope? Quote, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement 
must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, everything he just listed, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so certain, nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of an unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Amen? Interesting statement. But what's his answer to, is there hope? Uh, pretty elaborate, no. Not even close. Eh. So you have his answer. Now, I want you to remember that. I, I, uh, we have a, in case you didn't follow some of that kind of elaborate language, I have a cartoon that kind of sums it up. This is a Dilbert cartoon, look at this. Yeah. Same thing, just put in a little bit shorter place. Okay, now compare that, what you've just heard, this absolute absence of hope, the very thing that ruins, like this is not, this is inspiring no one. I want you to compare it to this. Which will be very, very important as we travel. I've strung together what the New Testament has to say to the question of is there hope. Listen to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And here comes that ancient creed. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He goes on to say, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Remember that. But, it says... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, keep your eye on that word, of those who have fallen asleep. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, so not every generation will face the true death thing, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, implications, therefore, my dear brothers, and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. I probably ought to say that to that one too. Amen. Did you hear the difference? It's probably stark, isn't it? What was the answer there? Yes, there 
is hope. And it's based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the claim. That's the Okay, so there you go. So you can see the obvious difference. What moves people? Hope. We are built for hope. We have a hero who's coming. We have a good hero. We have the best hero. Meanwhile, what's going on in modern Western culture? We are captivated by heroes, but not always good heroes, not always the best heroes. Right now, we're captivated by anti-heroes, anti-heroes, the rise of the anti-hero. You know, um, I enjoy good anti-hero story. And anti-heroes, by the way, because I'm going to say some things that you might think I don't know this, but <laughs> anti-heroes, the, the, the archetype of the anti-hero goes all the way back. I mean, it's like throughout human history, we've had anti-hero characters. They seem to spike in times of particular turmoil or difficulty. Uh, there's a relevant magazine article about this, the rise of the anti-hero. And uh, it, it talks about this. It talks about the historical things, the political things, the world events that lead to anti-heroes. Anti-heroes, if you don't know, are those heroes that they're, they're very complicated. They might not even be heroes in the classical sense at all. Uh, they do some questionable things. They might be kind of villainous. I mean, if you've ever heard of Dexter, you remember the show Dexter where Dexter was a killer and he liked to kill and dismember people and all those kind of things. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to exercise that um, on unless a person really deserved it. So he started working for as a detective or whatever, and then he could find the bad guys and, and carry it out there. This is a real anti-hero. This is a, that's a classic like anti-hero thing. He's doing something really wicked, but you kind of can pull for him because, well, you shouldn't be pulling for him. But that's, that's the anti-hero. Uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad, anti-hero. There are others. We'll get to them. But these characters show up, they're all over TV right now and all over movies or have been for the past several years. They, they tend to come on the scene when, as I said, times of turmoil are happening. For example, consider the popular Hollywood films and genres, according to Relevant Magazine. I should have said, quote, uh, for example, consider the following Hollywood films and genres from the mid-1940s through the 1970s. Film noir westerns, uh, uh, film noir, westerns, outlaw biker films, cop dramas, mob films, and sci-fi films have featured anti-heroes who have become some of the most iconic movie characters of all time, such as Philip Marlowe, The Man With No Name, Billy Jack, Dirty Harry, Travis Bickle, Michael Corleone, and Han Solo. Uh, so what was the historical context that served as the backdrop for these films and characters? In the mid-1940s, U.S. soldiers came back from World War II after witnessing unspeakable atrocities. Then, of course, there was the Korean War, the Vietnam War, student protests, two Kennedy assassinations, the Civil Rights Movement, Watergate, the Cold War, the Carter-era oil crisis, among others. Not only did we see some of the worst acts in human history committed during this time, but many of our fathers and mothers experienced it firsthand and took part in their own questionable behavior. Endless cultural progress was modernism's empty promise, and it resulted in a deep-seated mistrust of the establishment, including its boundaries between right and wrong. And so as a result, we had the anti-hero. Uh, what about right now? What's going on right now? If we consider the 21st century so far, 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Iraq War, Enron, Hurricane Katrina, the economic recession, Hurricane Sandy, the, Newton shoot, uh, the Newtown shootings, the Boston Marathon attacks, there's been a steady stream of terrible events to shake our faith in humanity. The promise of hard work resulting in economic prosperity and a stable future is no longer trustworthy. And so characters who shine as morally pure and upright don't ring true to us anymore. 
because it's not who we see around us in the world. Neither is it what we see when we look in the mirror. Brokenness is a part of humanity, and we can more easily relate to the choices that a character makes on a TV show if they are broken too. After all, a believable and relatable character is one of the single most important elements of an enjoyable story. So here's the thing. We got this anti-hero. Can I tell you something? I think there's something good about an anti-hero character. In fact, most good stories throughout history have had them. They're usually not the protagonist, although sometimes they have been. The anti-hero is ultimately, classically, uh, being redeemed, is in the process of redemption, usually because it's asp- this character is aspiring to be like the hero that is, uh, that is the essence of good and has those archetypal hero qualities. But things have changed. Now, one thing I like about, as, as a full-grown adult, one thing I like about the anti-hero idea when it's not taken to an extreme, is that we are complicated. Uh, people are complicated. We're not all black and white. Uh, we are, we do kind of have, uh, we, we, none of us are necessarily as good as everybody else thinks we are. Uh, but, you know, from a human perspective, we're not Adolf Hitler either. I mean, you know, what I mean, we, it's a complicated mix. People are complicated. Um, and, so, and so in that sense, there is something about it that is more, relatable on some level. Uh, but what is, but, but here's the thing, what we, what our stories used to do or what they do when we're not in times of turmoil is our stories present us with heroes that are the essence of good. And so we get like with Star Wars, the light side of the force, the dark side of the force. We have uh, the good guys and the bad guys. We, it was very clear cut. It was very clear cut. And our heroes might have been complicated, and they may have had their own problems and, and, and moral improprieties, but they're working through that to some ultimate redemption or to ultimately choose to do the right thing. And when you present people with that kind of a hero that is the essence of good or arrives at the right choice, and what it does, and the villain, by the way, who, who is the, the antithesis of that, what it does for you is it gives you and young people, children, a clear grid. That is what I want to be like. That is what I want to aspire to. That is what I definitely don't want to be. I don't want to be the bad guy. Are you kidding me? I don't want to be the bad guy. I want to aspire to be the good guy or the good girl. I want to aspire to be the right thing because morality is real. There's a real right and wrong. I don't want to do wrong. I do want to do right. And so films and books and fairy tales to a certain degree have presented this binary thing at certain times. And it, it, it presents a situation where we know what it is that we should aspire to. Uh, the problem is, with the anti-hero, what we're doing now is we're aspiring to ourselves. We're looking at characters that are not necessarily the epitome of good. They're not terrible. Some, type, some cases they are. In Dexter's case, it's, it's a train wreck, right? But... They're not terrible. They're not great. They're just, eh, they're like me. They're complicated. And there is something therapeutic about that, but at the same time, what are we aspiring to? We're aspiring to ourselves. We want to be ourselves. In fact, isn't that ultimately one of the messages that we have heard so much for the past 20 or 30 or 40 years, which is you need to embrace who you are. You need to, you need to learn to love yourself. Well, amen. But I don't need to love the wicked things about myself. I need a hero. I need someone to point to. I need someone to say, I want to be like that. I want to just embrace myself and everything along with it. And instead of facing my problems, 
I, I, I try to alleviate the guilt instead of responding to the guilt. I want that. I want to be a better man. I want to aspire to that hero. And as a result, we need, we need these heroes. It happens. Listen, my brother is, uh, is a graphic design artist, and uh, he has done work for some major um, entertainment companies. In fact, uh, all my life, I have been inundated with Disney because my brothers always loved Disney. And uh, it made for a fun childhood. You know, we lived in Jacksonville, Florida. We went to Disney World like all the time. And I love Disney. So it made it real easy when my kids, we got two girls, they started getting into Disney movies at a very young age. And dad could sing all the lyrics to like every song. You know, I, I just, I grew up with a Disney geek in the house. That's great. Here's the thing. As I think about it from a philosophical perspective, and I look now, here's what I see. I see that in most Disney films, I don't know about that, a common theme in Disney films is basically your parents don't understand. They are, they have somewhat of a truncated view of the world. You, the child, are enlightened. They don't, they don't get it. You know what you need to do? You need to follow your heart. You need to go against what they say, and you need to go out there and do this amazing thing, <laughs> right? And it always turns out good, or at least for the most part. I mean, isn't this the story of the Little Mermaid? King Triton doesn't want her to go to the surface. What does she want to do? Go to the surface. What does she do? Go to the surface. Uh, take um, uh, uh, Moana, one of the more recent Moana. Ah, your parents don't understand. <laughs> your parents don't understand. The grandma said, yeah, look, go, go follow your heart, whatever. And in Moana, guess what happens? If I remember correctly, I haven't seen that one as much. But uh, the villain is just misunderstood. And so on the one hand, we have the anti-hero. Now, I want you to notice this, this approach. We have the anti-hero over here. So our hero isn't all is quite as heroic. Uh, this he or she is uh, a mix. Not all good. It's not all bad. And our villain, which used to be the archetype of evil, is eh, it's not all bad. I mean, just misunderstood. I mean, if you, if you understood, you'd, you'd get it. And so there's some good there. There's some good. There's, it's a mix of good and bad. So who's the hero and who's the villain now? It's not clear. And what does this lead to? Confusion, for one thing. Nothing to aspire to, number two. And number three, a sense of moral relativism. Really, like whatever you do, is, is it really a right or wrong? Aren't we all a little mix of both? And isn't it all just, I mean, this, this is, and I understand it can be engaging because there's nothing we relate to more than that complexity. And so it's good to have characters like that. But the hero ultimate good, the good guys and the bad guys, the ultimate good and the clear representation of evil, it's evaporating. It's evaporating. And if there is ever a true, now here's the, here's the kicker. If there is ever a true representation of evil, uh, many times, what is it? It's a religious person. Right now, an easy target is a priest. I mean, let's face it, but often a religious person. So this is the situation, and the stories that we tell ourselves are powerful. They impact the culture, because cultural change often happens from the top down rather than the bottom up. And if you want to change a culture, you change their music, you change their movies, you change their books, you change their media. And right now what we're facing is a situation where our children, the cultural myths that, we're, that our children are being told, which, I, which by which I mean... Uh, the tales, the fictions that we tell, the, the stories, the movies, the things they love to geek out about. 
The ones that we're telling right now are leading to a very difficult and strange place. And I'm just going to say it. It's not a place of hope. Um, Christianity offers a place of hope. Think about Bertrand, Bertrand Russell compared to Peter and Paul, as we heard just a moment ago. Think about that. And here's the thing. If, I'm just going to sound like every preacher in America right now because they're right when they say this. Fact is, if you tell young men, specifically young men, young women too, but if you tell young men that Rick and Morty are right, that nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, everybody's going to die, come watch TV. You tell them that? You tell them, listen, Morty, I hate to break it to you, but what people call love is just a chemical reaction that compels animals to breed. You tell them that? Don't be surprised if you tell them they're merely animals and there is no hope and that the highest thing they can attain is their own pleasure, illustrated in the Rick and Morty with Watch TV, but they can think of a lot more creative things to do than that, to keep themselves entertained, that's in the news, frankly, quite often. You tell them they're merely animals and there's no hope. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You want hope? I can show you where to go. You trust Jesus. Because when the hero reaches out his hand, you take hold of it. If you don't know him, I hope that you'll come to know him. You can contact me at braxton at trinityradio.org. I'd love to talk to you about coming to know him and having some hope. Because for some of you, you could use it and you know you could use it right now. And I'd love to talk to you about it. Listen, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. But I know that there are some of you watching, the hundreds or thousands that watch these videos. There's some of you that need hope. I want to talk to you about that because God loves you. And guess what? I love you. Don't even know you, but I love you. Uh, I've enjoyed this time we've had together. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.